Nearly three decades ago, I wrote the first of a trilogy of walking books about the battlefields of the Great War. How did I come to write them? What did I intend to write about? Follow me on this journey as I describe how I wrote those books on the old front line. This weekend, it's History Writers Day on Twitter. This is a new idea and a new venture by Simon at the History Book Chat. And the idea is it's a friendly history book club, essentially, where this weekend on Writers' Day, those who write books connected to history, whether that's non-fiction or fiction, come online and tell a wider audience about the work that they do. I'm going to be putting out a number of tweets connected to it this weekend, There'll be a Twitter spaces with myself and Dr. Victoria Humphreys talking about the work that we do, my books, writing about the First and the Second World War. And she's going to discuss the work that she's done on her upcoming novels that will be published early next year. I've put some links up to the books that I've discussed in this episode onto the podcast website. And with the tweets over the weekend, I'll be linking to my writer's page, my author's page, on the Pen and Sword website. They are the publishers of the 10 books that I've written on the First and Second World War. But in this episode, this special episode of the podcast, I wanted to talk about how I'd come to write not all of my books on the First World War, but the trilogy that I'd wanted to write from really the very moment I began to visit the Great War battlefields. And it was a trilogy of books looking at how you walk those battlefields on the Somme at Ypres in Flanders and Arras in northern France. And I think that I realised the first time that I went to the Somme in the summer of 1982 with my father, we took the ferry across from New Haven to Dieppe and then the train down to Amiens and then the local train from Amiens into Albert It was a great route to do because it followed in some ways the route that many soldiers took by train into that battle area in 1916. And I remember standing up in the train and looking out the window and seeing the town of Albert coming into view en route between Amiens and Albert. I'd started to see some of the cemeteries from the Great War. Then I didn't know that they were cemeteries connected to the medical facilities that existed behind the Somme front, highly stationed was one of them, for example, close to the site of casualty clearing stations during the Battle of the Somme. But as we approached Albert, I saw something that I recognised from the reading that I'd done, from the books that I'd read for many years as a child, really. Uh, Fascinated by the Great War, I'd consumed just about everything that I could get my hands on, and that really iconic cartoon strip, Charlie's War, that appeared in the 70s and 80s, had really cemented my interest in the Great War. And there, looming into view ahead of me, was the tall spire of the Basilica, the church in Albert, on top of which was the Golden Virgin, the figure of Mary with her outstretched arms holding the infant Jesus. And I think as a teenager as I was then, I was probably disappointed that it wasn't still hanging at that 90-degree angle that it hung at during the period of the First World War. On that trip, we didn't have a car. We stayed in the Hotel de la Basilique, opposite that tall tower of the Basilica with the Golden Virgin on top. And we walked everywhere. The first day we went out, we walked through the town up to Bapome Post Cemetery, 
on the outskirts of Albea, down into La Boiselle, across to the Lotnagar mine crater, up along some of the tracks to Pozieres. We stopped at Pozieres British Cemetery, and I remember waving at the gardener there, not knowing that it was Yves Foucault, who would become a very good friend of mine. And then from there, we walked round via Mouquet Farm to Chiapval, across the Ancre Valley, and then down through Avalui Wood, back into Albert. For the first time walking the Somme, that was quite some route, and we were both pretty tired when we got back. It was a hot summer. We'd taken plenty of supplies with us, and we ate out in the fields as we tramped to that part of the battlefield. We met people along the way, not British people. In fact, we never met a single English-speaking visitor on that entire trip. We bumped into local people who stopped and asked us if we wanted a lift and were quite surprised to discover that we were walking the battlefields. My father, being a veteran of the Second World War, viewed that landscape through the eyes of his own military service and we had some interesting conversations about that as he talked about the ground at Anzio and how artillery would have affected the battles and I think that I learned from him at that very early stage just how important artillery was in these battles of the First World War. We continued on that trip with our walks. We took the train one day up to Bokor. We saw that there was a local station that took us up into the battlefields and we walked from Bokor across to Beaumont Hamel and saw the sunken lane and Hawthorne Ridge very much overgrown in those days, the crater completely inaccessible because it was full of trees. We walked down into Ocean Villas and across to the Newfoundland Park and then back across to Bocor. It felt then that this landscape really had not changed in decades. It felt on some days as we were still back in that interwar period of the 1920s and 30s, particularly when we opened some of the visitors' books and the inscriptions, the names and the details written in them went back to the 1930s, back to before the Second World War. And some of those in isolated cemeteries, Wagon Road near Bowman Hamill, contained the names of German soldiers who had visited during World War II. But having walked the landscapes of Sussex as a child, I saw a great resonance with the landscape of the Somme, another chalk downland, But more than that, of course, I think that I realised, even as a teenager, that my life had changed then, that something in me was now different, and that this was not a path that I was taking in some fad or some passing interest. This is something that I would carry with me for the rest of my life. And here I am, four decades later, still on that path, will always be on that path. I've just returned from a week on the Somme with fellow battlefield guides Tim Thurlow and Mark Allen as we've been out to recce our new tours for next year. And I visited new places and I visited old familiar places, places that echoed right back to that very first time I walked the Somme. It's a landscape which continues to teach you new things and enables you to discover new stories. That's part of what it is to many of us who return again and again and those who go for the first time become perhaps entwined in it in the same way that I was all those years ago but I think that when I returned from that trip having just recently visited Ypres as well with my school I knew that this was something that I didn't just want to continue to do to visit these battlefields 
I wanted to understand them, research them, speak to those who were there, who had experienced those battles, and then tell that story to a wider audience. Even at that young age, that desire to tell a story was very much there. And it took me a fair few years to achieve that, but it was a goal that I set myself quite early on. And I was helped when I joined on that trip in 1982 when we stayed in the Hotel de la Basilique up on the window of the hotel was a poster for an organisation called the Western Front Association, whose chairman was John Giles, who had written several books on the First World War. And there was his address, Gilton Mill, Porton Lane, Ash, near Canterbury. And I wrote that address down, and when I got back from the trip, I wrote to John Giles, and I had this incredibly kind, wonderful letter from him expressing his great pleasure that someone from a new generation had visited those battlefields, was passionate about those battlefields, and he welcomed me as a member to the WFA. And he and so many others, Richard Dunning, who was the owner of the Lochnagar Crater and had published then some of John's books, but so many others helped so wonderfully with the visits that I made subsequently. They supplied maps and information and flagged up places to go and walk, what were the best tracks. And this led to this jigsaw-style approach to understanding those battlefields by adding those pieces together, joining those pieces together and understanding the wider landscape, both there on the Somme and indeed other parts of the Western Front. And that kindness and willingness to help was something that was very much part of the early Western Front Association and I've personally never forgot it and something that I've tried to carry on myself. We've seen troubles recently on Twitter on that amazing platform that enables us as an audience together to talk to each other and to share so much and being on there for more than a dozen years I've carried on that early WFA ethos of sharing information of helping people and I think that's important to do. None of us own this subject. It's never, ever bigger than us. It's important to remain humbled by it, humbled by the men and women who were affected in so many different ways by the Great War. And it's important to understand that this was a people's war. It was about all of us. And that interest in people and the story of ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances is what led me in a more defined way to finally begin to write my series of walking books. Why walking books? Well, there were no guides to walking the battlefields. That's what I'd really done for all those years since I'd first gone with my father right up into my early 20s. I'd been doing it for years and years. And while others were walking the ground, nobody as yet had written a guidebook that took you onto that ground, told you how to do it. There was the iconic Before Endeavours Fade by Rose Coombs, often referred to as the Bible by many of those who visited the battlefields at that time. John Giles's then and now books, incredibly useful for understanding what was there and the history behind it. Martin Middlebrook then wrote a guide to the Somme battlefields, an incredibly detailed work, an amazing amount of information in there. And it's a book that I would thoroughly recommend. In fact, all of these books... Rose Coombs, Lynn MacDonald, Martin Middlebrook and, and that plethora of authors that were around at that time detailing the battlefields, explaining the history, giving voice to the veterans 
And then the wider historians like John Terrain, who was the president of the Western Front Association, he was an amazing historian, an incredibly generous man, another one who took me under his wing and I learned so much from him. And I learned as well that when you write history, how you write it is important. John Terrain's prose in his many books on the First World War, in my view, is almost second to none. Many modern historians could learn from the way that he wrote about the subject. The books draw you in. The language takes you there. But it's written in a way that's accessible and understandable and not aimed at a narrow audience. So this was part of not just my pleasure but my dilemma when it got to a point in my 20s when I wanted to write this book and start on the Somme with a book about walking the Somme How do I do this? How do I bring together the history, the stories, the veterans and the landscape? How do I put it all together? And I felt that the only way to do that was to get out there for some length of time. A few trips here and there for a few days was never going to be enough. So I stayed at a bed and breakfast on the Somme and I walked all of the battlefields that I intended to write about from Gomacourt down to Montabat and deep into Somme country beyond the Pozieres Ridge and around Corselet and High Ward, that horseshoe of woods in Longueval and Bazentin, incorporating Mamet's Wood and Delville Wood, and then the vast, vast open fields on the eastern edge of the Somme around places like Gerdecourt and Le Sars and the Transloy Ridge. And I came back from the three months that I spent there with pages and pages of notes, rough sketch maps, but much more than just the minutiae of what you need to write a book, a connection, an even deeper connection to that landscape. And I knew that just those three months was not ever going to be enough. And that led me on a path that eventually would keep me in France, keep me on the Somme for the next decade, for the next 10 years. And I was very lucky to live in that landscape, to live in that environment of the Great War, to live in the world of the soldiers who had fought through there and see the changing seasons and how it affected the landscape, to see it every day, to experience it every day. If you opened your eyes, you saw it in a completely different manner and that is something that will remain with me forever. Remembering the stories that the veterans told me of them watching birds on the barbed wire in front of their trenches or hearing them in the woods behind the line, I found myself doing the same, delineating my year with the arrival of the Swifts and the Swallows and their departure in late summer and the approach to autumn, watching how the weather changed the landscape, the skies, the vast open skies above the Somme, spending days in the fields, being drenched by the rain or in the winter feeling the cold, That first winter that I probably lived at Corsolette on the Somme, it dropped to nearly minus 25, which were conditions very similar to 1916-17 when the British and Commonwealth forces and the French on their flanks faced the German army in that coldest winter of the war. We didn't have central heating in the house at Corsolette. It was wood burners and coal burners. So we had something that the men in the trenches didn't, didn't really have. But it was still cold. It was so cold, the windows froze up, everything froze up. 
And it gave, I suppose, a small insight into the experience of those men who were there then, of course, 70, 80 years ago. Now we're past the centenary of it, and those days when I first went to the Somme to live there were almost three decades away. But back to the story of how I wrote these books. I went across and I walked the ground and I met so many people who wanted guided tours, wanted to walk the ground, and they very kindly agreed to go out with me and I took them around and they were the ones who really helped me write the book in terms of walking the ground and seeing what worked best. And part of what I did, of course, was also to understand what ground could be walked and what couldn't. There are no public footpaths as such in France. And I use the Blue Series Institute Geographic National maps, the IGN maps, which you could buy from the Maison de la Presse, the newsagent in Albert. And they gave me the kind of ground knowledge of where there were tracks because some were tucked away down lanes behind woods. And without looking at these maps in the days before Google Earth and all the other fantastic instruments that we've got online now to do our research, using these paper maps was the way forward, quite literally. And that's what I did. I planned the routes on the maps. Sometimes they work. Sometimes I found that the land ownership had changed and farmers had ploughed tracks up and they were no longer there and I had to find an alternative route. But that was only one level of it, of course. That gave me the way to get people round those battlefields, to see the ground, to stand on high points above Freecorps and get the German perspective looking down towards where the British advanced or walking the valley in front of High Wood and having that feeling that every gun and every piece of artillery and every machine gun was trained on you. All of this was how, as a visitor, you could connect potentially to that landscape. So that was one level, planning the routes, walking the routes. I then had to connect it to the history, and that required a great deal of reading or rereading in some cases. The memoirs of the Great War in particular helped a lot with this, to give a voice to these places, to connect them to particular stories. And of course, by then I'd interviewed over 300 veterans of the Great War, and I wove their stories into it as well. So in those months that followed my initial return to Britain and then return to France as I headed back to the Somme to live at Corsolette, I began to put the book together and write the chapters. And I decided to essentially write a series of walks covering the whole line from Gomacourt to Montauban from a 1st of July perspective and then look at the battles beyond the first day of the Somme in the woods and the fields and the villages and the ridges as the British Army and the Commonwealth forces, the Empire forces from Australia and Canada and South Africa and New Zealand and so many other nations besides fought their way through those German defences pushing the line back over that downland, that chalk downland, the very heart, the texture, the true texture of the Somme. I finished the book in 1995, and by then, this was my first year of living at Corsolette. The book was done, the stories were told, the stories were wound and bound deep into the narrative of the walks. And I was pleased that I'd been able to tell a lot of stories that had never appeared in print before and weave in some of those words that I'd learned from the veterans that I'd interviewed in the 1980s and 90s. I'd also been collecting Great War images for many, many years by then, and one of the 
criteria that I wanted for the book was that it would include many images that had never been seen before or rarely published. And I was able to do that with the images that I had in my collection at that time. And I remember when the book did come out, quite a few people remarked upon that. It wasn't just the same old photographs of the Somme that they'd seen before. There was a lot of new imagery in it. The maps were drawn by me based on sketches that I'd done in the field as I'd walked round those places. And finally, the book went off to the publishers. At that time, Pen and Sword Books, based in Barnsley, were publishing a series called Battleground Europe, where they were publishing titles on an individual villages and places on the battlefields, but they didn't have wider guides, so I approached them to see if they would publish my Walking the Somme. They sat on the book for a couple of years. One of their advisors told them that nobody walked the battlefields and that nobody would buy a walking guide to the battlefields. But I'm pleased to say that when the book did come out in May 1997, in its first couple of years it sold something like 20,000 copies and became one of the best-selling books that Pen and Sword published in that Battleground Europe series. So there obviously was an appetite for walking the ground and there obviously were people who did want to see the battlefields from that perspective of the ordinary soldier. And for me, personally, receiving those author's copies of the book, when they arrived at Corselet, the postman brought this box up to the front door and I opened it on the kitchen table and pulled out my first copy of the book and held it in my hands. It's an amazing feeling to do that when you've written a book and finally you see it as a tactile object in front of you. But more than that, as I flicked through the pages and saw the photographs and glanced across the words, some of them from the mouths of the veterans that I'd known, that was an incredible feeling too. I felt that at that moment, perhaps, I'd done them a bit of justice. And with the success of that book, the logical thing was to continue. I set myself this task of writing a trilogy. The next volume would take us to Flanders, to Ypres, and that book came out two years later in 1999. By then, I had a daughter who I called Poppy. Poppy, now grown up, worked recently for the Commonwealth Wargraves Commission as a guide at Tjapval and at the centre at Arras, the Commonwealth Wargraves Commission experience. And that made me very happy indeed and very proud to see my daughter following a similar path to me, a path that I certainly haven't pushed her down, but having to a large extent lived and grown up on the battlefields, it's something that, like so many of us who travel there, has affected her too. And it shows too, I think, that interest in the Great War is not just a generational thing. It's not older generations that are obsessed with it. It appeals to new generations and will continue to appeal to young minds who travel to the Somme and Flanders and Vimy Ridge and find themselves engrossed in the subject and the stories and the men and women whose lives weave like a heartbeat through those four years of war. But back to Flanders, back to the second book in the trilogy, Walking the Salient, as it was when it was first published, and now Walking Ypres. Ypres offered very different challenges to the Somme. The Somme, rural, chalk downland, 
Flanders was thick clay, flat fields, low rising ridges, and a lot more development. The city of Ypres developed greatly in the 1990s, and the industrial estate just to the north of Ypres, to have one example, had spread its way along the Issa Canal, and that was when a group of local amateur archaeologists called the Diggers began their work to work one step ahead of those building factory units and workshops and everything else that was constructed there. But at Ypres, despite the building, despite the changes, despite the development, there was still a story to tell, a great story of the First World War to tell. And there were still places where if you went off the beaten track on foot, it was still a rural landscape. That was particularly true along the Messines Ridge. And I found some great tracks and some great walks in that area, particularly around Messines and in the valleys beneath the ridge there. And of course, Plug Street, Plugstert Wood, where, as I did on my very first trip to the battlefields, you're able to walk right into the heart of it and find soldiers' cemeteries there. And again, as with walking the Somme, I wanted to include many new images that were unfamiliar to people, and I was able to raid my collection, my archive of First World War images, and use those. So a second book came out. It didn't ever sell as well as Walking the Somme. I think the Somme and the ground that the Somme is will always be one of those best places to walk the First World War battlefields, certainly on the British and Commonwealth sector. But it sold well, and it enabled me to work on a third volume, the trilogy was being realised and I began my work on walking Arras but by then as we're now moving towards the early 2000s what I'd begun to see is people really seriously begin to walk the battlefields and it was great driving around on a ledger coach sitting at the front talking to the group on the microphone and passing people on the tracks of the Somme or on the off-roads of Flanders with copies of my book under their arm as they walk those battlefields. And I like to think that those books help people explore the battlefields in a new way and opened up parts of the battlefield that they probably would never have seen if they'd just driven around in their car or on a coach. And when it came to writing the volume on Arras, I changed the formula slightly. The previous books, each chapter had been the walk I'd describe the walk and introduce and wove the history into it. But for Walking Arras, I separated it. So with each chapter, the first chapters on Vimy Ridge, for example, I gave the history of the battle at Vimy, quoted memoirs, quoted extracts from war diaries and other published accounts, again used rare photographs or images that had never been published before. And then the second part of that chapter describe the walk and what could be seen and wove in some more another level a layer of history and that I think works better if I could go back and write the other two or rewrite the other two I probably would do the same. Arras was much more like the Somme when it came to walking the ground and with that third volume friends who had been out on the battlefields with me for many years very kindly and graciously accompanied me on the walks as I planned them and wrote them up and researched them. My old pal Andrew Whittington, who I went to school with, walked quite a lot of the Arras battlefields with me in those early 2000s as I explored the routes 
and worked out what was possible on this battlefield that felt compared to the Somme or Ypres very much a forgotten battlefield of the Great War. The only book in print at that time about the Battle of Arras was Jonathan Nichols' excellent cheerful sacrifice which told the soldiers' stories of 1917. So it was nice to be able to add something to that and the book came out on the 90th anniversary of the Battle of Arras in 2007. Time, I discovered, particularly with a young family, passes quickly and it wasn't long before I realised that the books had been out for a decade and that new editions were needed. The battlefields never stand still. So from 2010 I began to write new editions of the Somme and the Ypres books. I added a Mamet's Woods Walk to the Somme volume, which I'd planned for the original one, but there hadn't been space to put it in. Now there was. There were colour photographs that could be put in the book this time, and I could add new images that I picked up since the first book was published, and also revamp some of the routes, because tracks had changed, just like the tracks that I walked in the 90s and discovered that some no longer existed in the time from the publication of the original first edition to 2010 when I began to work on a new Walking the Somme. Some places had completely vanished off the landscape so changes had to be made and it's now a dozen or so years since that book come out and probably there's a need for a third edition pen and sword if you're listening to this podcast. But that then led me on to do a new version of Walking Eep and I rearranged some of the chapters for that one and added a new walk in there too and also included several new photographs that I picked up in the interim. So it showed that as a writer and researcher and historian and battlefield guide and person who continued to walk that ground no matter what, things changed, things evolved, I saw the landscape differently And that's something that certainly continues. Your knowledge and your interest and your fascination, I don't think, for this subject ever stays the same. It continually evolves if you're open to that. And just this week, having watched the sun set from the Red Anne Ridge over the Somme, a landscape devoid of visitors at this time of year, you pretty much have the Somme to yourself almost each time. There's a different experience. Each time it affects you differently, no matter what battlefield it is. And I think it's a challenge as a writer to try and incorporate some of that in what you do. And I would say that I haven't always necessarily succeeded in that, but I try as new editions come out and new books move forward. So my original intention was to write a trilogy. In fact, I've worked now on a fourth walking volume to fill in the bits between Ypres, Arras and the Somme, the so-called Forgotten Front. And that book is about 85% complete, and I'm hoping to get that finished next year. It's fallen a little bit behind, partly because of this podcast and the work that goes into this. But the book is close to being finished, and it will cover battles like Neuve-Chapelle and Festibert and Givinci, and the Battle of Luz, and go to locations that are well off the beaten track, and hopefully encouraging new visitors to what are old places to me, but for many, 
There's no other guidebook or few guidebooks that kind of give you insight into this, and hopefully this will bring it all together. And one of the especially fascinating chapters of that book that I've put together is the one that looks at behind the fronts in that sector of the battlefields. That's actually not a walking chapter, it's a driving chapter because it's such a big area. It takes you right back to places like Saint-Omer and Lillers and Bethune and looks at those vitally important locations behind the front line where medics worked, where men from every corner of the empire was working behind the lines doing labouring tasks, where women were at the casualty clearing stations or at the headquarters. And so it tells a much wider story of the Great War, helps you to tell a wider story. And like I say, that book is about 85% complete and hopefully will be finished next year for a late 2023, early 2024 publication, something like that. So my walking books about the battlefields of the Great War have taken me across that landscape now over nearly three decades of publication. But they also took me a bit further afield because I published in 2012 Walking D-Day. I took the same ideas and the same approach that I'd done with the battlefields of the First World War onto a World War II battlefield. And in that incorporated the voices of the hundreds of D-Day veterans that I'd known and the time that I spent with my father in the late 70s and 80s walking that ground and cycling that ground. And I thought to myself, is there really possibly room for another book on D-Day? But again, just as I discovered with my books on the Somme and Ypres, no one had written a walker's guide to the D-Day beaches. And using information from contemporary sources and some unusual sources like the recommendations for honours and awards which gave a lot of micro detail about some of the circumstances of the landing I felt that there was a way to tell a familiar tale but in a new way and again it seemed that people wanted that because next to Walking the Somme it's my best selling book. Now as a writer of these books of non-fiction it's not something that's ever going to earn you any kind of serious money and money really was never the reason that I went down those paths of the Great War to write about them. It was to tell that wider story. And it's taken me across, as I say, nearly three decades of walking and writing about walking that ground and given me enormous pleasure in the process. And along the way, I've met so many incredible people, many of whom have become good friends and when I started this podcast in 2020, during those what now feel like far-off COVID times, I wanted walking the battlefields to be very much at the heart of what this podcast is about, a kind of extension of my books, because even in the pages of those books, I couldn't tell every story. And there were so many stories, so many soldiers' lives, so many women affected by the war, I couldn't tell all of those stories in print but the podcast has given me a way to extend that narrative, to tell those stories here through this podcast and to bring so many of us at times when we couldn't visit those battlefields along the tracks of the Somme, over the ridges of Flanders and to many other battlefields beside. Because to me, this will always be a subject that I give a lot to but gives me so much 
back in return. And this week, as I walk down the track at Corselet, up to that familiar view of Corselet Cemetery that I've photographed so, so many times over the years, as I've always felt as I've walked that ground, I'm never alone there. There's always the faint echo of footsteps from the past, of voices from the past. The Great War never feels very far away. It feels forever close. It feels at times like somehow it has never quite ended in that unique landscape of the Western Front and along those criss-cross paths of the Great War paths where we discover so much, whether writing, reading, or simply walking those battlefields. Whatever it is, it connects us to the old front line. You've been listening to an episode of The Old Front Line with me, military historian Paul Reed. You can follow me on Twitter at Somcore. You can follow the podcast at Old Frontline Pod. Check out the website at oldfrontline.co.uk where you'll find lots of podcast extras and photographs and links to books that are mentioned in the podcast. And if you feel like supporting us, you can go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash oldfrontline, or support us on Buy Me A Coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash oldfrontline. Links to all of these are on our website. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again soon.